On May 4th of 2016, Melissa and James Fleming's soon-to-be seven-year-old son, Brock, was outside with James and his sister, Jenna, taking their dog for a walk. While on their walk, Brock fell and hit his head. He suffered a severe concussion, one that was so bad that for a while, Brock was calling his mom, dad, and his dad, mom. Although there were no alarm bells set off during his neurological examination, there was an alarm bell set off when Brock smiled. Brock was immediately sent for an MRI. As is always the case with my podcasts, I welcome my guest immediately, which is what I did with Melissa Fleming. Unfortunately, Wi-Fi issues got in the way, and the first few minutes of our podcast were deleted. Fortunately, the crux of the podcast is in good shape, and we will pick up our interview as we talk about Brock's diagnosis and what happened from there. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Now, the doctor said there were possible three outcomes. Unfortunately, the third outcome was the uh, tumor being malignant with no cure, and the diagnosis was DIPG, which is the worst form of pediatric brain cancer with basically no uh, survivorship recorded uh, after a certain amount of time. Did his doctor sit you down and lay out what was next for him and explain where this might be headed? Yes. Um, it, you know, it's known in the pediatric cancer world as the I'm sorry speech. So we get the biopsy back, you know, Brock is bedridden. They pull um, James and myself, my mom and, and my younger brother were in the room. I wanted my younger brother to take notes. And that's when she rolls out that they were able to confirm it is DIPG with the biopsy. Um, they say, you know, I'm sorry, your child has brain cancer. I'm sorry, there's no cure. I'm sorry, but the left life expectancy is nine to 12 months. Um, you know, you can get radiation for six weeks, especially at this time. There's, there's not really anything else, uh, but look into clinical trials take your child home and really just create memories. And I remember just wailing. I mean, how, how do you react to something like that? You know, and, um, and then you got to walk back into the room with your son looking at you and, you know, people were coming in, you know, people were wanting to come and see Brock and they're like coming in right after. And I'm just trying to hold it together while I'm laying by him, but no, nobody's prepared to hear that. And, you know, and it's not just um, how do I deal with this myself, but how do I get Brock through this and and how do I get his sister through this? I mean, there's so many emotions, but I immediately just, you know, um, made Brock my priority. He got all my attention first because all he wanted was me. And then everybody else needed to take on Jenna and shower her with love and and um my husband took the role of, you know, calling all the hospitals. Um, the two of us, we don't accept no. If you know us at all, we don't accept no. So I became a, a chemo nurse overnight. I mean, I'm, I'm having to do everything to help him. And then um, James called all 50, top 50 at childhood hospitals. And he would in essence, demand to talk to the head oncologist and the head neurosurgeon. And if they made him wait very long, once he got him on the phone, he would first lecture them about how long they made him wait. And doesn't he realize how terminal DIPG is and that he doesn't have time to waste. Um, but that's really kind of what got us into the research world and seeing the lack of funding and the lack of options. Um, Brock only had seven months. And, and I remember being very angry that I didn't get my nine months. As silly as that sounds, I was told nine to 12 and I only got seven. So it's a lot of mixed emotions going on. Understandably so. And again, 
I have no idea, never will have an idea how anyone can can hear that kind of news and go on. But obviously you and James and Jenna uh, certainly did a beautiful job uh, doing that now that it's been uh, six years and you could look back on it a little bit, I suppose. So Brock couldn't walk, couldn't talk, couldn't eat, but he was starting radiation. How long did that, the, the, the three things he couldn't do last, and then in the next four or five weeks, how much of Brock's brain tumor had been re- reduced through the radiation? Yeah, so um, they were telling us he might not even be able to walk again, right? It, the, the tumor was so huge and growing so aggressively. And I remember I'm trying to get a second opinion from Texas Children's, and one of the head nurses was literally an inch from my face, and she's like, when can we start radiation? You're in such a fog, you just don't even realize like what's happening. And I'm thinking, I don't want to give my kid radiation if he doesn't need it. What if it's the wrong diagnosis? I mean, so naive to all of this, right? And so they opened up the radiation on a Saturday to, so they could start it right away on him. Um, that in itself is, is pretty traumatic because they, they um, put a mask and they, they secure the kid's head to a bench while they get radiation so it can't move. And it's the, this creepiest thing because they've got this white mask or wet mask that they secure and then it hardens as he lays there. And he had to wear that every time. Um, they had no idea. It, you know, the reaction to radiation with, with this tumors and the pons and it controls your eating, your walking, talking, heart rate, everything. And if it grows too much, that that's what kills the kids. So they don't know if the radiation is going to do the opposite. Right. So you've got them on heavy, heavy doses of steroids, starting the radiation. Um, when he initially started getting mobility, we would celebrate the little things. Oh, Brock, look, you were able to move your hand by yourself. Oh, you were able to move your feet. I was. He would always try to do it himself first, but it would just be moving it before we could sit up. But within a month, he was walking with a walker. And the physical therapist said, this is Brock's determination. I can't teach him this. And she would just ask him to try things and he would do it. And so we had a goal and he loves swimming and water slides. And um, there was a a resort in Dallas, not far from us, Great Wolf Lodge that he had been to before. And so our goal was to get him walking so we could go to the water park. So within a month, he was using the walker and two weeks later, no walker, um, which is amazing. And a lot of kids don't get that mobility. We found out later his tumor shrunk over 65%. So it had a huge response to radiation. So of course we're celebrating, amazing. He's gonna be the one that beats this, that lives longer. Um, What we didn't realize at that time is he literally has the most aggressive mutation of DIPG because there are different levels of mutations within DIPG. And often the more they, the better they respond to it is the more aggressive it comes back. And so within a month, we find out that the tumor shrunk 65%, but there there was already a little dot somewhere else in the brain. And um, they'd say, oh, there's a little speck. We're going to see what that means. Um, And so now anytime I see people post, I know what it means, although they don't. And that was the start of it metastasizing. And um, again, the most aggressive. So it immediately at least starts metastasizing throughout his brain. Um, and so, you know, at that time you couldn't re-radiate like you could now it's metastasizing. So, you know, we're in 2016, there was literally one trial that he's now disqualified for because it's metastasized. And then the second one is a target is a drug that is not targeted. So that's one of the reasons I've been a huge proponent of biopsies when people weren't getting them because we, would have put him on a trial that was never going to work. And so I, I think, you know, information is knowledge and key, especially when fighting this, although every parent has to decide for themselves. Um, but now we're in this situation of um, no trials are open. We can't re-radiate because that wasn't allowed at the time. That was a trial going on. Was it safe to do or it came after Brock's battle? Um, so there was one thing called CyberKnife where they could uh, radiate and it's very pinpointed. And so um, they would just go one tumor at a time that metastasized because I think at this point now he's got three. 
And so I, I explained it to Brock as it's like a BB bullet. Cause remember we're law enforcement family, it's a little BB bullet and they're going to go and zap it. And so it would be an hour and a half, six weeks worth of radiation on that one spot. Um, so he did that once uh, that within a month, here are new ones. We did it a second time. And then uh, the third time we go to look, um, the original ones are already growing back, more popping up. And at that point, they're like, we, we, there's no reason to keep doing this. And, and that's when it's really bad. <laughs> there's no more options. During this time, is this when you went to both Texas uh, Children's Hospital and then came up to Boston to go to Children's Hospital in Dana-Farber. And that uh, was under the care of Dr. Mark Kieran, who was at the time the director of uh, pediatric brain cancer at Dana-Farber. Um, were they administering these um, uh, uh, jolts to the head, uh, you know, were trying to get rid of those tumors? And were they the ones that said, we just don't have any more options for you? Yeah, so we went to Texas Children's because they're a few hours away from us. They um, didn't have any open trials. Um, they weren't really able to give us any more information than we already had, although um, obviously definitely in the world of DIPG and good people. Um, so at that point, then we went to Dana-Farber and we got to meet Dr. Kieran. Um, that was a wonderful experience because we had so many questions and, and he had a lot of answers. Now, not, not the answers that we wanted of a cure, but things that were happening with this tumor, like he had a cyst and the metastasis. And because Dr. Kieran has seen a lot more cases of DIPG, he could confidently explain what was happening and why it was happening. Um, and so he, once again, was just able to kind of let us know what to expect and what he's seen in kids like this um, and just answer questions. So whenever we came back home and we're doing the cyber knife and the cyber knife was administ administered here locally, there's, there's a top surgeon here that administers that with the kids and adults. So we had that here in Austin um, and it was Austin cyber knife, uh, but we're still trying to figure out any other options. So we, every time we were making a medical decision, we would talk to Dell, we would talk to Texas Children's, and then we would talk to Dana Farber. And we liked that because they all had different perspectives, but it helped us come to the same conclusion. So we liked being able to talk to a few. At that time, there was an over-the-counter drug, panabinostat, that DIPG families would know, but it was just launching. Um, we did not want to take Brock to participate in the formal trial because his health was declining so bad, but I was able to give it over the counter at home. Uh, my husband was absolutely fighting to make that happen with the help of local doctors. And so our Dell Children's doctor prescribed it under the guidance of Dr. Kieran, who had the experience with the drug. So again, they were working together, but we were doing it at home. And that's why I said I had to become a chemo nurse because I mean, I was learning how to administer the stuff. And at that time, you know, he was, he was good at swallowing, but he never had swallowed a pill. So I remember sitting at my mom's house and I'm trying, I, I know that this trial's coming. He has to be able to swallow it. So I'm giving him Skittles just to practice swallowing. And then uh, he was able to do it. We we only kept him on uh, panabinostat for a couple of weeks. He, you know, it was the tumor or the side effects. He was just deteriorating too quickly. I was like, there's no reason for this. It's, it's going to kill him to stay on it. Um, we also tried another drug under um, talks with um, Johns Hopkins. That was, um, it was a, another drug. I just went blank. Membenzazole. Um, Membenzazole is the drug and it's used um, for brain infections. And so again, we didn't want to travel. So I feel like it was helping because one of the things Brock told us during his battle was that kids didn't understand what it was like. No one understood. It felt like cobwebs in his head. And so once he was in progression, he once again lost his, um, his ability to speak, but he could shake his head yes or no. And so every day I would ask him, are you better? Are you worse? Does it feel like more cobwebs, less cobwebs? And he was starting to say less cobwebs. So was it the drug? Was it just his time? I'm not sure, but we were doing all that at home again, under direction of all three. 
Now, as you discussed before, DIPG uh, has a nine to 12 month uh, life expectancy. And Brock did not even make it, as you said, to the nine months. He made it to seven months and five days, which is incredibly short. Um, after his di- diagnosis uh, in, uh, on May 5th, he passed away on December 10th of uh, 2016. What were his last weeks like? Not fun. <laughs> uh, you know, I, I, I think of him often. Um, I, I would never leave Brock's side. And, and, you know, like I had said before, I, Jenna got the entire family. And so my family was amazing. They would, there was a lot of people around and they would give her attention. Um, when he was still mobile, we, we would go and do something fun every day. Now granted in a wheelchair, but we'd go see a museum. He basically wanted to buy toys, but it was hard the last couple of weeks. My, my dad and stepmom were here and they were going to go back to Florida for a few days or a few weeks and come back. So they wanted to give him his Christmas present early. And it was um, this play set and he had been asking for it. And so I helped open it. And when he saw the present, his eyes just lit up and then they immediately fell. It's, it's, it's a little hard. And it was in that moment that I realized like he realized he couldn't play with it. He, he At that point, he has no mobility. I mean, he's back to not being able to move anything but his hand. And so he can't sit up and he can't play with it. And I immediately just kind of pushed it aside and, and knew no more presence. Um, so that, that, that's a little hard. And he didn't like me to be away and I didn't always realize it in the moment. So I would go to get something and I'd have someone come sit by him. And they would come get me. He wants to eat. Cause he knew if he, if he motioned, he wanted to eat that, that I would come running, but he didn't really want to eat. It was his way to get me back. Um, and, you know, and uh, when he was still sitting up, but all symptoms were coming on and the panabinostat wasn't working, we had a method of, um, you know, I'd say, is it a food? Is it a place? And it was just him and I kind of a guessing game, narrow it down. I had pictures that he could point to and he had an iPad that a friend had given him. And so he was pressing D. And so I'm trying to figure it out, like dog, you know, is it a TV? And he kept saying, shaking his head, no, 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 no. And then it hit me and I said, doctor. And he shook his head, yes. And he said, and I said, um, you want me to take you to the doctor so they can fix you? And he shook his head, yes. And and that was the moment I had to tell him, sweetie, there's nothing at the hospital they can do. We're trying this drug at home. I know you don't like hospitals. I will take you there, but I think you'd rather be at home. Do you want to stay home? And he shook his, yeah, his head, yes. And, and that's when he, he was giving up. Like I could see his spirit was, was giving up. And it's the only time I got emotional with him. Um, and I just started crying and I said, you, you have to keep fighting. I can't be here without you. And well, so that was the only time I composed myself. Didn't do it again. <laughs> talk about being a trooper. You were and are a trooper to be able to, relay that story to us because it's, you know, it's such a difficult thing. Uh, again, unimaginable. Now I'd like to talk, like you to talk a little bit about Brock, the individual seven years old, full of life. And maybe you could, can give our listeners the essence of, of what he was truly like. And I know that he had some famous quotes along the way about his battle that uh, he certainly wasn't, wasn't taking this sitting down. That's for sure. No, he wasn't. Um, Brock is just a cutie pie. Very handsome. He knew it. Um, (laughs) He always cared about what he wore. Now keep in mind, they were superhero shirts or they were sports shirts. He only liked like the air shorts, um, you know, the basketball shorts style is best to describe it. Um, But he was particular. He liked long socks. Um, Whenever he was in preschool, it would be so cute. I would get up 20 minutes early because I knew every morning he was just going to have to work through wearing a uniform. He had to wear a uniform Monday through Thursday. And we would count down to Friday, 
free day and we would work through it. And so he would wear two shirts. He'd wear a superhero underneath his uniform. So as we're walking out of preschool, he could take it off to get in the car. It was hilarious. Um, he loved soccer. He got to play soccer one game uh, during his battle once he was walking again, and he was the goalie and loved it. Um, he was a big swimmer. We had built a pool a few years before, which was another blessing because it's really great for when they're having trouble with mobility to be, we would just spend hours in the hot tub sitting there. Um, but he loved to swim and race his daddy. Um, he was into Legos. So when he wasn't walking, but he could sit up, we would do hours of Legos. And so I would hand in the, or he would hand me the piece and I would put it together and nobody else was allowed to do it with him. He didn't want anyone to help. It was just him and I, it was so cute. And those are all in our China cabinet. China went away. The Legos are there now on display. And he liked watching Jurassic Park and Jaws, even when he was like four years old, don't judge me, but he would watch him with his big sister. Um, him and, and Jenna were just two peas in a pod. They were known as the Flemings when they would walk into school and he just would walk into a room and he, he would just bounce like, and not hyper, just energetic and happy and just had this glowing smile and just a really, a really big heart, just a really cool kid. Um, Whenever he was battling, he he was angry. He didn't want anyone talking about cancer. He would have different thoughts in the car. Like one time he said, why am I the only kid in second grade with cancer in their brain? Um, you know, when you're on steroids or the lack of mobility, like steroids also make you angry. And so he hated, he would say like, I hate my body. Why is my body doing this? But then other times, uh, one time he said, you know, I'm blessed to have you as my mommy. I'm blessed for daddy. I'm not blessed to have cancer. Like he's just processing these thoughts. I mentioned the cobwebs of saying no one understands what it feels like. Um, but he would joke. We weren't allowed to talk about cancer, but he would joke that he was going to kick cancer in the nuts. And so that's really become our our slogan, we even have a few fundraising shirts that say kick cancer in the nuts. Um, he knew what it meant and he thought it was funny. Um, he, he liked to uh, shake his booty. When he would dance, he would kind of like hop leg to, leg to leg while sticking his butt out. It was quite funny. So um, he, he definitely had a lot of spirit. <laughs> no doubt about that. Now, I'd like to ask you about your older daughter, Jenna. She, I believe you told me she's just going to be turning 16 very soon yes and um brock would have been around 13 so she saw firsthand what was going on uh with her little brother everything that he went through maybe she wasn't there as much as you were certainly but but uh had a sense uh of of and i'm sure saw him at some points uh when it it, it wasn't a lot of fun to see him my question is how it's been six years a uh, little uh, since uh, Brock's passing. How did she handle it then? And I guess maybe more importantly, how is she doing now? Yeah, you know, um, my husband worked weekends every other month. So often Saturdays, it was just Jenna, Brock and I. And we would start the Saturday morning with one fun thing. And so, I mean, they were really close and we would vote on where we were going. Was it the zoo or was it swimming? What have you? Um, and I always kept things really fair. I have two brothers and I was the only girl and the boys got to do different things than me. So I, I told my husband from the beginning, every, whatever Jenna does, Brock's doing right. <laughs> so um, it, it, it would be even who goes to school first. We would rotate every day between elementary school and preschool. So then there was never fights. We would just take turns. So when Brock got diagnosed and all of a sudden I'm all about Brock, you know, she's starting to struggle a little bit. And, and the hospital gave me a book to read with her about cancer. And, and I told her, I said, look, you know, I've got, got to give Brock attention right now. He doesn't feel good, um, but you get everybody. So you actually get more, you know, Brock doesn't hear this. So you, so I had to position it that way. Um, but I noticed like she wasn't really talking to him. She wasn't including him. And so the four of us go to the Austin Zoo. He's in a wheelchair because he's not walking yet. And she starts getting upset because they don't have, you know, 
big kid strollers or carts for her to sit in. And why does Brock get to sit and she doesn't? And I just said, James, keep Brock. And I walked down around the corner and I said, Jenna, you can't act the way. She's like, it's not fair. I mean, she's nine. She's trying to process all this. And I said, you know, Jenna, I will tell you right now, he would so trade you. He would so much rather be walking like you and not have to be in a wheelchair. And, you know, you, you need to be a good sis, big sister and y'all are so close and I don't see you talking to him. And she's like, well, I'm just going to wait till he's better. And so I had to say, you know, I don't know if he's going to get better. And so I, you really need to start talking to him now and let's be with him how he is now and see how this is. And, and she just flipped from then on. She, you know, so if he, if she, if he's sitting on the couch, she's going to go pick out the TV show. He had an iPad. She would color beside him. So she was now whatever she was doing, she'd come sit beside him and they do it together or at least beside each other. Um, and, and then, you know, once he's walking a step and we're getting to do fun things, now she's getting him back. Um, when he started to progress, you know, I kept talking to the child life, like, what do I say? And she's like, whatever Brock and Jenna ask you answers what they ask, nothing more. They keep asking you questions. You give them more. They want to know the answers to what they're asking, but they're only going to ask what they're emotionally ready to hear. And so I was hoping it was the best. My biggest fears with Jenna, I think, you know, as any parent, it's our job to protect our kids and take care of them. And I was really afraid that she wasn't going to trust James and I anymore. If we couldn't save Brock, how are we going to take care of her? And that was a huge fear. Our family is strong in our faith. And I was afraid that she might turn away from God. I know better now. Kids are closer to God than anyone. So fortunately, that didn't happen. Um, but I never told her he's 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 not going to make it. And part of it, too, was because I couldn't say it like. James knew that we couldn't talk about it. It was the day he died is the first time I asked what could it look like? And I would talk to the doctor about it. Now she would always let me know. I would say I would know the doctor would tell me, but, but we weren't going to talk about it. So how could I talk to my nine year old about it? And, and so, you know, when he passed away, I had to say, you know, your Brock, your brother's in heaven now. Um, when he passed away, she wanted just her and I, in our room. Daddy could come in, but nobody else. So, you know, all the families coming. I mean, my dad and stepmom were literally driving to Florida and turned back around. And so we, um, they would stay outside the living room and Jen and I would be inside. She had me watch all of, um, these religious movies like miracles from heaven. Um, and she wanted to see how God saved the kid. And she was trying to process it and trying to get as much information and, um, and, and, you know, after a few days now she would come out <laughs> and then I let all the family know, like, just, just let's follow her lead. And I remember like a few weeks later, we're saying, standing there at the kitchen and she's sitting on, on a chair and she said, you know, Brock's okay. Brock's in heaven. He's good. And I said, you know, he is, it's us who are having to figure this out. Um, so she handled it pretty well. Um, but now she starts becoming a teenager. We've got COVID. We quickly, Jenna and I found we cannot handle isolation. Um, with COVID, I wasn't as concerned about health. I was physical health. I was concerned about mental, emotional health. And so everyone else is at home. Jenna and I are getting out <laughs> because we just had to. And and, and those were some pretty heavy days with just depression and not seeing friends and not at school and, you know, canceling her big 13th birthday party. And um, and so we just found that that she needed socialization. As soon as the schools were opening, she was back in it. I mean, there was like two other kids in a room with her that she didn't know. The teacher wasn't even teaching her, but she was <laughs> she was there. But each person has to figured out for themselves. Um, you know, she was, she's a sophomore in high school. Um, freshman year was tough, full force, everyone back. Um, she was trying to find her place. She has her good friends, but she was having a hard time. I was very concerned that it was, you know, Brock. Um, I was talking again to a child life. They explain that, you know, when they're young, like she was at nine, um, 
you're, you've got one set of emotions as you become a teenager, you now start having adult reactions. And so I was sharing to her, like a good example is we go on a vacation, you know, you get away and you're having all this fun and you come back home and now you're a little depressed. Your son isn't there back to reality. Well, Jenna started experiencing that, but she doesn't realize why it's happening. So, so I know she's now starting to get sad when we come home. And so I'm explaining, well, this is why it is. And they said, share with her, you know, within reason. So we've kind of had to go through all that, but we recently switched her to a private school and, um, and, and that's a much better atmosphere for her. Um, I, I'm glad to know it wasn't all Brock because obviously that's always going to be a part of it, but I was also finding it was just the school environment right now. It was, um, it wasn't conducive to her. And so, um, right now she's doing good, but you know, to this day, she doesn't want to really look at videos of Brock. It makes her sad. She will will reference him. I mean, Brock's a day is a part of her life every day. But Blair, his younger sister who came after him, talks about Brock in the present. And, and Jenna still doesn't open up as much. But I just kind of let her talk when she does. Um, but she she's doing as good as she can. And I now know that she's going to be dealing with these emotions at different times in her life, just like all of us parents. I don't think there's any doubt about that. I'd like to switch now to talk about Team Brock Fleming, which has raised over $1.6 million in over six years to help with his DIPG fight. Now, you were actually doing events while Brock was still alive. And I think that um, your good friend Connie Collins was a big part of that. Yes. My, My question is, that you are again involved in trying to help others who've had DIPG. Why has it become so important to you and to James and to Jenna and, and Blair to an extent uh, to want to, <laughs> to want to really uh, contribute to helping these patients? So we came, um, so we are the Austin Round Rock Team Brock chapter. I got a lot of names, um, but all the money we raise benefits the cure starts now. And we uh, found them during Brock's battle. So um, Connie, as you had mentioned, um, she quickly formed a committee with some other close friends. I wasn't even close to them at the time, but now, I mean, we're obviously all family and they're still part of the committee. But the idea was to just do a monthly fun event that our family could come to, that Brock could see his friends if they chose to come, and it would give him something to look forward to. There was a fundraising component like to help support us because we're trying to get into trials and not sure what travel expenses. Um, But then, you know, companies would like to donate, but they needed a 501c3. And so that's when we found out that the Cure Starts Now uh, primarily funds research for DIPG and all pediatric brain cancers. So we had a fun run in October when right before progression, and he came out to it and they came out and brought their banner. So I think we were able to raise about 10,000 during his battle for them. And then, you know, the money that we didn't use for trials, we, we've now given to the Cure Starts Now over time. Um, and so when Brock passed away, I was reading this book that someone gave me on grief. And one of the things it said was that you have to decide what you're going to do. And I know people always reference they want to find a new norm. I've realized it's not a new norm. This is a second life. I had a first life with Brock and Jenna. And this second one's much different with Jen and Blair and they don't overlap. And what do I want my second life to be? So, you know, some it's too much and, and they go with their kid. Well, I, I, that wasn't an option. It's not gonna, I'm not going to do that to Jenna. I couldn't do it. Um, she didn't choose this any more than us. And I have to make sure I'm still continuing to be the best mom I can. And then it's, do you exist and just get through it or do you live? And, and I want to live. I say, if I'm stuck here without my son, then I want to make sure I'm, I'm living each day. And what I found, you know, during Brock's battle, when he was in the hospital after his biopsy and couldn't hold his head up, the nurse came in and there was a board on in it and, you know, write the doctor's name, write the nurse's team. So we know the nurse's name. So we know who the team is. And then it says, what do you want out of this visit? And she's asking me 
and he's just had brain surgery. And I'm like, what? And, and looking, and then Brock raises his hand. I know. And we both look at him. We go, what? And he goes to make Brock better. And that is what pushes me. All he wanted was to be better. And once you're exposed to this and you see how little funding there is from our government, 4% for all childhood cancers and less than 1% for brain cancer, that is the number one cause of cancer-related deaths in our kids. Are you kidding me? No wonder that he didn't have a fighting chance. We failed him. And so um, by raising money, I, I'm creating awareness that our kids get cancer and that they get brain cancer and the lack of funding. And, and I want people to look at where are you donating? You obviously, If you have a giving heart, like make sure the money is being spent how you want. I, I want to empower Brock's friends, uh, Jenna's friends, like, they're now in high school, middle school, and, and they want to do something. And, and I want them to see, like, no matter how bad it is, get back up and, and change this. If you don't like it, you change it. And I want to empower our kids. And we've been so blessed because of the, the team brought committee and doing these monthly events. Afterwards, I go to dinner and they're like, well, do you want to do something? And I'm like, y'all want to do something? And that's what launched our first golf tournament. And, you know, our first golf tournament, we raised 148000 and I was blown away. We had no argument, had never run a golf tournament. We're Googling how to run one. We're talking to the Cure Starts now. They're bringing in their resources. And so I'm, I'm still just amazed at how people join our efforts, continue to support. Um, and, you know, we do the fun run for the kids, the golf tournament to raise money. But we've, we've rallied the whole um the whole community. And even um, now we've gotten different like local moms cancer group that we meet. I think we're going to have dinner on Thursday where it's just cancer moms of all types of cancer. And you just start forming these support networks. So it's, it's really a form of therapy. But Jenna let me know one day I was, you know, you have your moments and it was probably a couple years ago, a fun run. And, you know, things always fall apart right before the event and you just get through it. And I remember going, that's it. <laughs> I don't want to do this. And Jenna comes running in. No, mommy. No. What, is, what are they going to do without you? We have to have team Brock. You're going to find the cure. And I'm thinking, oh, I'm glad I got a lot of researchers behind me. Um, but that let me know that this matters. And, and, um, and it's, it's, it's really uplifting to see all of Jenna and Brock's friends come to help us at these events now, but, and then Blair, you know, she's cutie pie. She likes to be on videos. So she's always wanting to help me on videos with team Brock. Um, but, but the, the chapters, you know, there's 39 chapters, there's over 50 ambassadors are all families, um, that want to help. And so you, you become family, you become friends, um, you help each other. We're going to have a big DIPG retreat um, March 31st to April 2nd. Um, we've been doing it in Texas. Some Texas ladies, we started it just getting together twice a year for a weekend. And um, at the request of other moms that wanted to come to ours in other states, we've now done a, a statewide. So we had our first one last year and had about 20 moms come. But this one is now sold out. 60 moms, 23 states, even a mom from Canada coming. And so it's all just good coming out of really bad. And um, that keeps me going and makes me want to do more. Well, that's exactly what it is. You're doing so much good out of so much um, uh, bad things that happen. And the message that you delivered was really an important message. And it's something that you're, that's going to carry you for many, many years to come. And you'll look back at 2022 and say, well, we've raised one we, yeah, the, uh, right now it looks one point six million dollars, which is great. And you'll look at it 20 years from now and said there'll be millions and millions more uh, that you will that you will raise. And, and the thing is, and I hope that you have thought about this, believe it or not, there are some signs, maybe more than some, that DIPG. There's so much research now going on. There are so many things that are happening that the goal, and I think it's a realistic one. Um, we've had a number of people on this uh, on this podcast talking about it, that this most terrible disease is going to improve markedly over the years. And, that, and I, I would think that you would have great hope and great pride in doing it, uh, what you're doing. 
Yeah, you know, and that's one of the reasons that I, I or our family raises money for the Cure Starts Now because um, I get to vote on research. So what happens is there's what's called grant season and the researchers apply for grants. And then we have a medical advisory committee that goes through the grants and kind of ranks them. Is this something that looks plausible? Is this just trying to get money or do we need to go back and ask more questions? And then once it's kind of narrowed down, it comes to all the chapters and we get to decide who gets the money. And then there's a symposium and the next one's going to be in May. It's it's every two years put on by the Cure Starts Now and the DIPG Collaborative. And all the researchers come in and there's going to be over 30 that'll be presenting on their grants and where they're at. And then there's foundations are coming and, and they're working together and then families are there and you're all in the same room for a weekend. And so I'm in the middle of all this research and I'm seeing what's happens and, and little things like being, you know, a grant funded to be able to re-radiate. Re I mean, there's kids that are getting it four and five times. They wouldn't even let Brock a second time. And we were begging to get radiation. We're seeing kids live past a year, past two years, past three years. And maybe it's not the answer, but but we're, we're getting closer with every trial. And then this research, I mean, it's about delivery methods and it's, and it's about just the test cases and creating new research ideas and then in the actual clinical trials and, and all things are happening at the same time in different areas. And so that in itself is inspiring because I see where the money's going. I can see progress being made, not the, the cure, but we're getting so close. And, and then I can tell people like when you're donating, it's making a difference. I see it. And, and so that, that is absolutely, I believe um, Dr. Karen had told me five years and, you know, kind of joking, but I was like, Hey, I know when you said that, and I know what year we're on. <laughs> um, so um, I, I'm definitely expecting it sooner than later, but as, as research, it, it takes a long time. And most people don't even know. I mean, these clinical trials will take 15 years from beginning to end. It's So it's things that are happening now that started many years ago, and we just have to keep funding. But even some of the grants, and there's two new researchers um, that we funded grants for. So it's kind of exciting to see more and more researchers get into this realm. Now, you talk about awareness being so important, which it is. And one thing that happened in 2019 was that, and I'm uh, I'm going to say he's your friend, uh, Michael yes. Chatron was the, he was the engine, I guess, that pushed yes. the state of Texas to create DIPG Awareness Day in your state. This was again back in 2019. Can you talk about Michael, who lost his daughter Caitlin to DIPG in 1999, and how important is this proclamation in the state of Texas? Uh, as more people have now become aware of what you and so many others have faced. Um, so that is a very neat story. So Michael and Barbara Chatron, their daughter, Caitlin, battled in 1999, April's when she was diagnosed and she battled for 17 months. So just imagine 1999, there's no Facebook, there's no social media, there's no chats. Um, and here they are. There was another family that was battling the same time. So fortunately, they had one other family that they could talk to. So after Brock passed away, he had been featured. Um, he was the Grand Marshal in our July 4th parade. So they had seen us and um, he dropped off a letter at my office at the time and just said that we're another family. If you ever want to talk, reach out to us. I'm like, yes. And so um they had not heard of the cure starts now. So now they're kind of seeing what I'm doing and they wanted to join our efforts. And Barbara will tell you, this is the first time she's ever had hope that we'd find a cure. What made the, the DIPG day so exciting. So we actually tried in 2017, Leslie Cantu on my committee, she is involved in lobbying in a different capacity. So she was calling on some people to help us and due to politics, it got squashed. And so Michael and Leslie picked it back up in 2019. Well, he was a lobbyist and was daily at the Capitol. So it was really fun for him because he'd been there 20 years, but nobody knew of Caitlin. I mean, he didn't talk about it. There was no reason to. So he really enjoyed getting to go to his friends, these legislatures, and share Caitlin's story and ask for their support. Um, and so 
it, it really helped to, to get it passed. And it's more than a proclamation. It's actually a bill. So it's it's DIPG, Texas Awareness Day, forever. Um, and so it, it was really great. Um, I'd like us to be able to do more awareness on the day. There's just always so many things going. It's so hard. But um, but it, it, it helped legislatures see the importance. And um, there's a lot more advocacy that needs to get done to get more funding. And I think it's just another step towards that direction. Um, but it was just a really neat opportunity for um, Michael to be able to share Caitlin's story with these legislatures. So it's a it's a pretty fun big day. No question about it. How has this experience uh, that you've been through changed you? Oh gosh, <laughs> I think um, the first thing is that, like our kids, uh, my innocence is lost. <laughs> you know, uh, I was telling someone the other day, like I don't. When my kids have a fever, I'm like, great. You know, people are worried. There's a hundred, two hundred, three fever. I'm like, no, that's how the immune system's supposed to work. It's a bug. We'll get through it. Um, but you have a headache. You have you get nauseous for no reason, and you're fine a few minutes later. Um, it's triggers because I realize that that these can mean other things. Um, and so I'm always looking at my husband, I'll be like, okay, I just need you to say they don't have brain cancer. And it's just kind of a silly thing, but at the same time, I need him to say it, right? So so I, I realize that there's things that can happen that you can't control. Um, I have always been a fighter. <laughs> my maiden name is Hatfield, so that should say something. And, um, but I've realized my eyes are open to the medical community. There's so much good, but there's so much that's needed. And I, and I'm always trying to tell people like when, when you're battling something medically, the doctors mean well, and they know what they know, but they don't always know everything. And so sometimes you might take comfort in that. Okay. They're telling me it's going to be okay. Well, go ahead and get a second opinion. Um, I'm experiencing it in a different capacity. It's not, it's not cancer. It's not life threatening, but there are some physical issues. And, you know, we go to the first surgeon and they're like, Oh, you know, it's too late is what it is. You're fine. And I'm just like, no. So what do I do? I go to a specialist now that I know what the diagnosis is and we can have treatment and be good in a few months. And so, you know, I'm, I'm just open to the world that, People in authority don't have all the answers and that you have to be your own advocate for yourself, for your kids, and obviously be respectful. You don't need to be combative, but make sure to do research and take it. Um, I've always been one to live life to the fullest. I've always been one that I look at the positive things. Sometimes I've had to look a little bit harder, um, but but I've also had to learn to give myself grace um, and give other people grace. And really understand that people see things through their own eyes, try to see it through theirs and um, work together. And that's a lot of life lessons for this. Um, and, you know, I, I sold my business um, so I can have more time with my girls. I, I'm doing stuff with the Cure Starts Now. I'm, I'm back in financial planning. Um, but there are things that I can make an impact, that I can have fun um, and just do the best that I can. So a, a lot of lessons learned through this, a lot of different, different lessons. <laughs> I, I just like, like to ask one more question. Have you noticed a different uh, group of friends that you have now versus what you might've had say back in uh, 2013 or something like that? I mean, have you, has your, uh, are you able to relate better with people who have experienced what you have experienced? You know, I, I kind of, my friends, I have a lot of different buckets is how I would say. Um, right before Brock has had diagnosed, you know how people have new year resolutions, right? So one year year's resolutions, like two years before that was um, in my personal life to look at my friends and the people, you don't have to go around telling me I'm great, but do they make me feel good or do they make me feel bad? And if they make me feel bad, then they shouldn't be in my life. I'd kind of already gone through that process and, and had really solid friends. And those friends were the ones that really launched the committee. Um, some of them were, but um, those friends I didn't lose because they're important to me. I need them in my life for different things, right? Um, a different, different emotional times of my life, right? But now I've got more friends. Now 
I've got like these committee that the new ones, they're my group. I've got these local cancer moms. I have these DIPG only moms. And um, to me, I, I, I need all of them. And, and, and I've, I've been blessed to be able to keep these friendships and, you know, I don't like to small talk as much. I, I definitely have to be careful. I'm a extrovert. I like to network, but there's times that I'm like, I can't go and do small talk today. So I've got my limitations of when I need to kind of go away from people and when come, but, but I've been fortunate to keep some of my older friends that I'm close to. I, I've become closer to them. Um, but maybe the friendships changed just a little bit different. And I, I've got new friends. I need my DIPG moms. I need my local cancer moms because I can say things without having to explain. <laughs> Certainly a great credit to you because uh, unfortunately it does happen that when uh, a parent or a uh, adult ha- has a crisis like uh, you and James had, sometimes the friends go away. So, yes. uh, so it's great, obviously, that they stuck by you. Where can people get in touch with you, with Team uh, Brock Fleming, to find out uh, more about some of the events that you have um, and and what you're doing uh, to help uh, The Cure Starts Now? Um, Teambrock.org. I'll take you to um, my page. Um, It'll go to The Cure Starts Now page. You can see about Caitlin, Brock. We have another family, Alexis Renders. She battled a few years ago for exactly a year um, and she's joined our chapter two to help with events. I'm um, adorable. So we actually have three families a part of our chapter. Um, but teambrock.org will show you the three kids. Our events are always um, on Facebook, Team Brock Fleming. Um, I will be creating the event today for our golf tournament. Um, but, let you know, if there's people in the community locally that want to come out and volunteer, that would be great. Uh, we're definitely going to be building up our junior committee. Um, so the kids can get their volunteer hours and be a part of it. So those two places, teambrock.org, and um, I'll take them to the Cure Starts Now page and then the Facebook page are the best ways to find me. Well, as we come to the end of this podcast, uh, I have to thank you uh, so much for taking the time to talk about your beloved and wonderful son, uh, what he went through, which is it's unseemly. I don't know what to say about it. It's a t- terrible situation. And what we've discussed a couple of times now is that you and your family have taken this situation, had to deal with it and have come back and done so much good. And this is really, I mean, you've only been doing this for six or seven years, so it's going to be lasting for a long time. And you're going to be helping so many people uh, in this DIPG community. And I want to wish you and your family well as time goes on. And again, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you. And you have a great day. You too. I thought that Melissa did such a great job in being able to talk about Brock. As once again, we learn of an innocent child getting diagnosed with the worst possible form of pediatric brain cancer. The one good thing that hopefully will come out of all this is that there have been advances made with many more coming as so many people are putting in countless hours to try and solve the mystery of DIPG. This is Mark Levine, and please tune in on Thursday when I will speak with Jessica LaBella, who will talk about her daughter, Anna, who was diagnosed with Ewing sarcoma in July of 2019, gave back to others during her treatment, and passed away on August 2nd, of 2022 at the age of 12.